Good morning, everyone. Is everyone enjoying the beautiful weather outside? I feel like it's a Colorado tradition. It's 95 degrees yesterday, and it's like, oh, it's Halloween. Nope, nope. No one's allowed to actually see the costume that you're wearing. Everyone has to wear, like, winter jackets. That's, that's just how Colorado operates. But, yeah, it's beautiful. I'm loving the weather. <clears throat> Really excited to be able to open up the Word with you guys today in the book of Hebrews, continuing the series that we started last week. You know, I think it's interesting that from the, the dawn of the fall, people have been fascinated with the spiritual, absolutely fascinated with the spiritual. There's something about it that sparks intrigue. It sparks discussion, and honestly, at times, it sparks just complete knockout fights, people talking about the spiritual world. As people, we want to understand every element of the world around us. Anything that we don't understand, however, it becomes, at times, it becomes an obsession. It can lead us down the wrong path, and it can lead us down that wrong path really fast. In every culture around the world, we see the supernatural discussed in some way, shape, or form. One aspect that rings true in every culture around the world is the presence of angelic beings of some sort. The, the creatures that you hear stories about that were seen by the ancestors, the, the creatures that were spoken to, or the people that were spoken to by a being of light, they were cursed by them, they were killed by them, they were enlightened by them. You name it, and there is some sort of tale of an angelic being doing something throughout human history. In the ancient Middle Eastern context, which obviously we're going to be talking about today, it was angels. In the Hindu-Buddhist realm, there is something called a deva, and it's an angelic being that guarded each person. In the Japanese culture, there's tenin, and that was considered their heavenly person. Egyptians had all kinds of different deities and spiritual beings and everything in between, and then Gnostics, which is translated knowledge, had heavily, heavily influenced the Hebrew people at the time that this book was being written with their notion of angelic beings having intense deity-like authority. So the reason I share all this isn't for the sake of a history lesson. If you like history, great. You're welcome. But more so, it's to put this passage into context of what we're about to study. So even though we're not sure of the exact timeline the book of Hebrews was written, last week in Dan's sermon he talked about the, the potential timelines, what we know for 100% fact is that this book was written after the perfect life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And it was written at a time that these Hebrew people, they needed a reminder. They needed a reminder of, of different aspects they needed a reminder of truth. They needed a reminder of encouragement. And in this case, in this passage we're going to study today, it was a reminder of truth about angels. So the author of this book, he was intentional in his writing. He was actually extremely intentional. Because if there weren't false teachings surrounding this specific topic, what would be the purpose of devoting this entire section to the concept. I was thinking how apropos it is that we would be discussing this particular passage today of all days, good old Halloween, right? Today, 
Today, um, the fascination of the spiritual is at its highest level. This is the day, especially in our country, that people are absolutely fascinated by it. There are so many passionate perspectives on either side of the coin. Some love it. Some absolutely love it. They love the dressing up. They love the scare aspect. It, it, honestly, it's, it's a lot of the unknown. Like, ooh, it's going to happen. Someone going to jump out from somewhere? And then you have other people that are in complete opposition of it. They are willing to die on the anti-Halloween hill every single year. So when I was a little kid, I was the force to be reckoned with when it came to anti-Halloween. So my mom and I were just talking the other day, and she reminded me of a special incident that happened in a grocery store one fateful Halloween day as a kid. So my mom and I, we were doing our normal thing. You know, we went through the store. We got all of our groceries. We walked through all the different aisles, and then we ended up heading towards the cash register. On arrival to the cash register, <clears throat> I noticed that the cashier was wearing a costume, which, you know, at that point in time, I could keep my cool. It's like, okay, you're wearing a costume. That's fine. I'm like seven, but it's, it's fine. You, you can wear your costume. But this lady... She had the gall to ask me the worst thing you ever could have on, on the day of Satan, 1990-something. She said, what are you dressing up as? I looked at her, and in my little kid anger, I shared that I would not be dressing up because this is Halloween. This is pure evil. This is Satan's holiday, and you are worshiping Satan because you are wearing that costume. This is a true story. You can ask my mom. <laughs> Now, what's wrong with that story? You're sitting there thinking, wow, there's so much wrong with that story. <laughs> Was it wrong for me to be passionate about something? Was it wrong to stand up for what I believed in? See, those things aren't the problem, right? It's not, it's not about the, the passion. It's not about the standing up for what you believe in. It's the distraction. It's the loss of focus on what matters. As a kid, I got so obsessed with being anti-Halloween, I missed the point of why I was saying I was anti-Halloween. I loved Jesus so much that I wanted people to know, but that wasn't my perspective at the time, right? My perspective was, I just don't want people doing it because I think I'm right and you're wrong, and that's the problem, the distraction. So when someone is passionate one way or the other, I, I believe there's a complete disconnect at times. The disconnect is where the focus goes where it's not supposed to be. Now, take this idea that we just talked about, my special story, all of that, take it back full circle to the angelic beings that we were just talking about. Is there anything wrong with angels? Should we pretend that angels don't exist? And the answer is absolutely not, because they do. But it's when they become the focus that's the issue. It's when the created is the focus and not the creator. Go ahead and pray. Dear Heavenly Father, God, we just come before you. We're so grateful to be able to be in this place, uh, to come together to worship you. I pray as we open up your word this morning that you would speak through me, God, that every person in this room would leave here desiring to 
uh, grow closer to you, desiring to see the truth of who you are. God, that we would leave this place desiring to not be distracted by the world, but to see you clearly for who you are, to put you in your rightful place. God, we love you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. So this morning, we're going to see this idea of the new and the old coming to life in in a really beautiful, harmonious way. And in this book, we're, we're going to see some of the most profound, deep theology put into play. And it's not just this morning, though. It's, it's not just this passage. This book of Hebrews, over the next 30 or so weeks that we're going to be talking about it, you're going to see this as a pattern. The old pointing to the new, the new pointing to the old, and the beautiful way that it works together. So go ahead and open up uh, your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 1, and we're going to start in verse 5. should also be on the screen. I got a text this morning from Chase saying, hey, do you, uh, do you have any slides? And this was at like 7 o'clock in the morning. I was like, oh, no. So those guys up there are so awesome that I probably have 400 verses in this sermon, and they figure out a way to get it all in. So if you ever get a chance, make sure to thank those guys up there. All right, <clears throat> Hebrews chapter 1, verse 5 says, for, okay, stop there. Every time I preach, you have to do that, right? You have to find that one word and just stop everybody. So if you haven't been at this church, uh, if you've been at this church for any amount of time, you know that whenever you find a for or a therefore, you have to look back and see what it's there for. So we have a for, so we're going to look back, which takes us back to Dan's passage from last week. Um, And in Dan's passage, we saw this incredible introduction packed with deep theology uh, that we have to go back to to see where we're going to today. So Hebrews 1, 1 through 4 says this. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is much more excellent than theirs. So from only a couple verses, we see that Jesus Christ our Lord and Savior, we get to see him for who he actually is. We see his glory, we see his radiance, we see his royalty. He's the heir of all things. His power holds everything together in the universe. And making purification for our sins with, with the original idea that God spoke through the prophets. So, so we see Jesus full spectrum. Who he is as as God, King, the one who rescues and saves us. And then this idea, again, that this was spoken through the prophets, and that reminds us of the Old. It reminds us of the Old Testament. And then now, with Jesus, the truth is being spoken through the Son, which is a reminder of the New. So from here, there's a shift from this broad understanding of Jesus being over all, in all, through all, to a narrowed-down perspective that he's superior to the angels. I think that this is a really interesting shift, if you think about it. 
Because the author here, he could have made the point with anything. He could have made the point that Jesus is above any specific thing. He's above the kings. He's above the princes. He's above the great leaders of the time. But instead, he focuses here the attention on the spiritual. He focuses on angels. So this takes me back to my thoughts at the beginning of the sermon regarding the purpose of the author's intention with this concept specifically. So even though slightly extra biblical here, bear with me. The idea that the Jewish people at the time would be struggling with the authority and level of power angelic beings had, that makes sense. It makes complete sense to me. Because throughout Scripture, if you go through it, the people of Israel fell into false beliefs that brought them into worship of false spiritual beings all the time. It was kind of a pattern of theirs. And each time, God pointed them back in some way, shape, or form to the truth. So from the introduction, putting Jesus in his rightful place, We see the continuation in verse 5, ensuring Jesus' authority is where it should be. Verse 5 saying this, For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. So going back to the four again real fast, we can reword this verse to say, Because Jesus is above all, Did God ever say to the angels, you are my son, today I have begotten you? So immediately, right off the bat, the author is not only asking a question the people would have to answer, but a question that they already knew the answer to. This was a rhetorical question and also something that came directly from the Psalms. So remembering his audience the author is consistently pointing back and forth from the old to the new, as we talked about at the beginning. He's going back and forth from the old to the new. The old law Jesus fulfilled, and then the outcome from that fulfillment. So this first line right here is pointing back to Psalms 2-7, which says this. I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Sounds slightly familiar? So the people at the time would have immediately understood the context. So when I was saying previously that it's a question that they would have known and understood when they had to ask themselves it, they would have understand, understood this context because it came from the Old Testament. So in this psalm, the decree being spoken of is the king taking the throne. The son originally in the, in the context of the Old Testament was assumed as David. But this verse is now being seen as the Messiah by the people. He's he's putting two and two together for him. He is the one above all. No person can boast this aside from Jesus, and especially no angel can claim this. Only the true Messiah can claim as the true son, the heir of all things. So from here, the author dives into another question, again, that the people would know the answer to regarding these angels. He says, or again, 
This is that same verse. Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. So again, a direct reference to the Old Testament. This is 2 Samuel 7.14, which says, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. Again, another direct quote from it. So at the time when Samuel wrote this, it was assumed that, again, it was referencing David, but not just David, it was his son Solomon. But with Solomon's failures, it's clear to the people, another great indication of why the author used this, it was clear to the people that Jesus, and only Jesus, could be the true king that it was referencing. So already within this, this would have sparked the Hebrew people's attention. Not only is it pointing to Jesus as above the angels, but also utilizing the Old Testament, they would know well, uh, they would know well to establish the reminder of Jesus being the great king over David. Jesus is the great king, the better king. He's better than David. He's better than Solomon. The author continues in verse 6 saying this, And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, Let all God's angels worship him. This is the third reminder that the author is bringing into play. And it brings in some heavy-hitting material. All of this is, but, but right here it really hits home. As we heard last week and we saw previously here in this passage, the concept of the firstborn is being royal, is royalty, it's before all, it's the true heir. So the true and rightful king of everything will be worshipped by the angels. So again, if you didn't guess, this is referencing something that people have known, and this is Psalm 97.7 which says, all worshipers of images are put to shame who make their boast in worthless idols. Worship him, all you gods. And also a translation within this, gods as angelic beings, spiritual beings. So already we can see the author breaking this down so clearly for these people. They need to understand this point of who Jesus truly is. He's asking these rhetorical questions as a reminder of the truth and most likely truths that they'd strayed from. Or possibly that they would be straying from or they could stray from, and that's why they needed the reminder at this time. So just from a couple questions, it's clear and evident from the Old Testament to the New, Jesus' supremacy over all creation, including spiritual beings, being the, that's the main push here. And to go back to this, this verse specifically, when I was talking about that hard-hitting material, it's not just that he's over them. They're to, supposed to worship him. This might be something that you could read and just, just scroll past, like, yeah, yeah, that makes sense. But this actually points to Jesus' full deity. This points to Jesus being God. Only the one true God is to be worshipped. And this is saying, angels, you worship him. 
This brings this incredible, beautiful truth that Jesus is truly God. He isn't like God. He isn't equal to Satan and the angels, which uh, some religions put into play. They say that Jesus is God-like, that he's more equivalent to his spiritual being, that he's not actually God-false. That is not what this is saying. He is the one true God. The author continues in verse 7. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. So from his last point of Jesus' full deity and supremacy, the writer shifts just a little bit to who the angels actually are. What's their purpose? We're going to say Jesus is above them, but they actually exist. Then why are they here? So before we discuss the details, I think that it's important to recognize here that angels do have importance. It might get misconstrued pretty quickly that what's being said shows the angels have no value. But it's actually being made perfectly clear that they do. They do have value. They have purpose. And they actually have a really important job. But within that very important job, it shouldn't be made a priority, right? That's, that's what he's trying to get at throughout this entire passage. This job should be acknowledged but not prioritized by the people in their minds. So when I was in high school, I had some pretty traumatic incidences um, regarding the spiritual world, um, and it continued until just a couple of years ago. And I used to tell this story to people, not for the sake of a scare or anything like that, but more of a PSA of sorts public service announcement to the world. Don't make the mistakes that I did. Don't do what I did. It's not great. Problem is, no matter how much I tried to share that, with, with that at the forefront of my mind, it always ended up creating fear or it created an infatuation of the spiritual world in some way. So I share this because I think it's vital we see things for what they actually are the roles that they play, and who it is above it all. So in our minds, we don't replace the creator with the created. People, as I said at the beginning, we're weirdly infatuated with the spiritual, and we can elevate it above Jesus. We can elevate it above the truth, who he is, that he's in charge. Which brings us back again to the purpose of the angels, again in verse 7, saying this, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. Which is referencing Psalm 104. <clears throat> and this, this Psalm 104, it places the angels in the context of where they're supposed to be in the grand scheme of everything. Bless the Lord, O my soul. O Lord, my God, you are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty, covering yourself with lights as with a garment, stretching out the heavens like a tent. He lays the beams of his chambers on the waters. He makes the clouds his chariot. He rides on the winds of the wind. He makes his messengers winds, his ministers a flaming fire. He set the earth on its foundation so that it should never be moved. So he's above them. And, and in fact, not only is he above them, but he sends them. And like the elements, like the wind and like the fire, they move fast. 
They're moving quickly for the sake of the king and his kingdom. This is making an even more detailed distinction between the creator and the created. So moving away from the questions about the angels to the statement about the king in verse 8, it says this, but of the son he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. And this is referencing Psalm 45, 6, which says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of your kingdom is the scepter of uprightness. You seeing the pattern here with the old and the new? Everything is being quoted from the Old Testament. Everything. The author definitely knew his audience, that's for sure. So again, pointing the people back to what they knew in David, fulfilled in Jesus. That's what this verse is saying. However, this verse right here takes it to a whole new level. Of the Son, so he, the Father, says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. This again is a direct point to Jesus being God and his throne being forever. From beginning to end. So this is a direct flip-flop from the previous three verses of God the Father referencing Jesus the Son as the firstborn heir over all. With the idea in the back of our minds, honestly, that, that fathers are above sons. If we think about a father and a son, in our minds, in the finite way we think about things, we would put a father above a son, correct? If Malachi was asked, if he was equal to me in authority, the answer would probably be yes, because he's six. And he would think that was hilarious. But in our earthly perspective, that's, that's not the case which makes this passage mind-blowing. Because fathers have been around longer, correct? They teach their sons from birth what they need to know. Which I think in some religions, and honestly you can see it in other religions, puts Jesus lower on the totem pole when they just look at these passages saying, Father, Son, Father, Son. Jesus and Satan are not brothers. He is God. He is not a God-like being. He is not an angel. He is not angelic in some sort. He is God. When we understand this, it changes everything. It changes the perspective completely. He, Jesus, is God, and he's on his throne always. The scepter is, is the royal staff that he has. It's this visual of uprightness. The dictionary definition of uprightness is the condition or quality of being honorable or honest. So honorable honesty is what Jesus' kingdom consists of. And I love this because this is truly a Trinitarian perspective. Now, we do not have enough time to go into the Trinity by any... I mean, we could talk about the Trinity for months on end. But we see the Father, we see the Son, and the Holy Spirit included in this conversation as equal. We see it as one with different functions for the sake of His glory and a relationship with His children. 
which then continues us into verse 9. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. So this is an obvious statement of the Messiah loving righteousness. That's probably good. Hating wickedness. Hate wickedness. Therefore, he has been anointed with the oil of gladness beyond the companions. So if we look forward in this book, we can see these companions being... De- referenced here, are not angels. Companions are not angels. So we need to understand the context and look at Hebrews 2, 10 through 11. It says this, For it was fitting that he, from whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers. Which contextually we can see points back to his companions. I think this is such a beautiful picture when we start putting it all together. We see the passage continuing with the concept of Jesus, Son, King, God, his preeminence over everything, but then we see his love for us shine through all of it. That we could even be able to approach the throne of grace, let alone be considered companions, be considered family. This right here should solidify where our perspective should lie regarding the importance of anything outside of Jesus. This brings us into verse 10 that says this, And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands, which... This right here is just a continuation of the previous thought that we were talking about. And it puts, again, Jesus in his rightful place in the minds of the people. This is the anointed king above kings. This is the Lord above lords. And he is the one who laid the foundation of the world. This goes back to what Dan was talking about last week. This, this brings us into the Genesis 1-1 thought process of, in the beginning, God. Jesus is the function of creator. Jesus is, is this, the incredible Lord above lords. This is vital to understand because now we see the son who came, lived and died for us, his companions, This Jesus, who is the king, anointed by the Father, the creator, the one who made you and died for you. Are you seeing all this come together? This is a whole lot that should put Jesus pretty high in our minds. As Dan said last week, it's the dual function of creator and redeemer. I love that line. The king stepped off his throne above the angels to be brought low for our sake. Again, if that doesn't put Jesus above all else in your mind, I don't know what would. Verse 11 then says, They will perish, but you remain. They all wear out like a garment. So what was created was ruined by us, messed up sinners. Everything around us is going to die. Everything is going to fade and break and wear out. 
This brings into play what the king did even though we destroyed his creation. He will remain. He's above all. He is steadfast and even in the brokenness prevails. And then it says in verse 12, like a robe you will roll them up. Like a garment they will be changed, but you are the same and yours and your years will have no end. So this takes us back to verse 10, a continuation of the thought regarding creation. Jesus created Men broke it. It's going to fade away. He will roll it up and make it new. This takes us into Revelation 22. This is second coming talk. He will return to roll up the old and replace it with the new that will never fade like a garment. That was faded. It has to be replaced. It has to be made new. A full-spectrum look at who Jesus actually is and his supremacy over everything. Who knew that in a couple verses we could see the entirety of the line of who Jesus actually is? Jesus, Son above all. Jesus, King above all. Jesus, Creator. Jesus, Savior. And then Jesus, Restorer. A whole lot. Which takes us into verse 13. And to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? I look back again to the Psalms, this time to Psalms 110.1. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. So this is also, as with everything, profound within its context. Originally, this was written of Yahweh God, the true name Yahweh, uh, the true name of God, Yahweh, to David, sitting on the kingly throne at the right hand, which is a place of power over the enemies. That, that is what that was talking about. So then the author of Hebrews puts it into the proper perspective of Jesus, the better David, and making it clear, again, who Jesus actually is. Brings us into our final verse 14. Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? This right here ties it all together. Angels have an important role to minister to those who are to inherit salvation. They're to assist, but for what purpose? It falls on that one word of salvation. Without Jesus, there is no salvation. Without him, we are lost, broken, in, lost and broken in every way, shape, and form. Without his perfect life, death, and resurrection, we have nothing. So when we understand that we are broken, messed up sinners in need of a Savior, in his loving kindness, he rescues us. No angel can ever boast that. Nothing on this planet can ever or will ever be able to boast something so awesome. So yes, the angels have an important job. But it's only because of Jesus that they exist and have a job. Without him, there's nothing. So this is the main point. The people then, and us now, we can get infatuated with things. We start to lose perspective. We start to lose sight of the most important thing. In this country, especially recently, 
we can get passionate over the minuscule. We can get lackadaisical about, about what we actually think, what we actually believe, and we can focus our attention on things that, in the grand scheme of eternity, it, don't, it doesn't matter. So at this time of year, there might be a bigger focus on the supernatural, on angels, on, on whatever. As the people in the time of the book were dealing with, were processing. But I don't think that's fully the message. It's not, it's not just specifically about angels. And we're, we're going to see that throughout this book. This whole book is about, is Jesus better? And it goes through, the author goes through each different section that I believe the people need encouragement with, they were struggling with, of who Jesus is and why he is better. I think the message here is to remember who Jesus actually is. Above all, in all, through all, and don't place anything above him. No matter how passionate you are about something, don't let Jesus go to the wayside. As you leave here today, I want you to ask yourself, what are your priorities in your mind? What are the things that you think about the most? When you wake up, what do you think about? When you're about to go trick-or-treating today or or anti-Halloweening or whatever you're doing today, what are you thinking about? Are you more worried about being the anti-Halloween, like, I just don't want people doing this? Or do you have Jesus at the forefront of your mind that you truly desire people know who he is, that they understand who he is, that they would come into a relationship with him? When we get caught up in, in everything else around us, is our perspective Jesus? Is Jesus better in your mind? When you find yourself in a situation like when I was a kid, confronted with something that you're passionate about, something that you prioritize in your mind, ask yourself, is Jesus better? Has this thing that I'm so passionate about been raised to a level that it shouldn't be? So in the context of this passage, it was the question of, is Jesus better than the angels? And the people had to address it with those rhetorical questions in their mind. What's the thing being presented to you this morning? And how are you going to address it? He is the one true king. Don't let something else go before him. Because Jesus is, in fact, better. Let's pray. Lord God, again, we come before you and are just so blown away by this passage. Jesus, that we see you for who you truly are. The reminder, the encouragement of you being heir of all, above all, in all, through all, the God of all. That you loved us enough to die for us so that we could be back in a right relationship with you. God, I pray that we would never let anything go above you. You are the one above everything, so why would we ever put in our minds things above you, God? I pray that that never be. I pray as we leave here today that we would not let the 
idea of, of Halloween go above you, that we would not let the idea of, of being a right fighter go above you, God, that you would truly be above all. We love you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.